Hello friends and philosophizers, welcome back to Sourced Out the Search for Truth. In our Search for Truth, we're going to take modern truth claims and put them to the test. I'm your host, Stephen. Occasionally, I'm going to forego going through an, a, a statement or something that uh, is going on in the culture for the purpose of highlighting a conversation I have with someone. Y'all probably remember, for those of you that listened to episode 4, when I talked about conversations I had on Reddit with some agnostics. Honestly, I believe that that one was more important than a lot of the ones that I've done for a couple of reasons. First, uh, it was based on actual conversations that I was having with actual people. Second, those conversations were actually very productive. Uh, It wasn't just like us throwing around some uh, statements at each other and both just claiming the things that we believe. Uh, we were both interacting with each other's ideas. And that's what made the conversations so productive. In this scenario, I'm talking about uh, a follow-up to episode 7. If you remember, in episode 7, I looked at uh, the game Detroit Become Human, and I talked about how the culture is starting to shift towards a redefinition of life that includes artificial intelligence. Now, this struck a couple of nerves because, you know, of course, if I'm going to talk about the definition of life, I'm going to have to talk about uh, what human life is, and that's going to lead into a conversation about unborn life. And I had a very interesting and helpful conversation with a pro-choice individual on Reddit, where I have pretty much all my conversations. It began with some basic pro-choice arguments, uh, human life being uh, consciousness, a heartbeat, uh, being reason, you know, the the, the basic things that you hear fairly often. And uh, when I heard that, I had to challenge it right away. Because part of the problem I have, and what I'm really wanting to do is I'm wanting to walk you through this conversation so that you know the arguments that are being made from a living pro-choice advocate and the responses that I give based on the logic and the truth that we know. So those two arguments, the consciousness and the heartbeat, they don't hold up very well when you try to add consistency and uniformity to an argument. So for example, the, uh, the example that I gave is Uh, When someone goes into cardiac arrest, their heart stops beating, they lose consciousness. Those things do not disqualify that life from existing. I mean, we do say uh, in a lot of medical circles and in a lot of popular circles that when uh, the heart stops beating, someone is technically dead. Uh, The problems I have with that is, number one... um, you, you'd you have to discount the fact that those brain cells are still alive. I mean, some of them are dying when they are deprived of uh, oxygen and blood flow. But uh, the reason that an individual is able to be brought back to life when their heart stops is because, well, a lot of those cells are still alive. Uh, the uh, The amount of time that you can keep someone alive from CPR tends to go to 
for most people about 10 minutes, and that's because there's still oxygen in the blood. This is something that you learn during CPR training. And that's why uh, when I was doing CPR training for work, one of the things that they tell us is if you have to choose um, between rescue breathing and uh, CPR, you give CPR. The reason is because there's a close to 10 minutes worth of oxygen still in the blood. So you keep those chest compressions going and it keeps that blood pumping and it keeps uh, all of those cells oxygenated for at least close to 10 minutes. Now the goal is to get them breathing again and to get their heart pumping again. Um, and that's something that chest compressions don't necessarily help to do. And I'm starting to go off tangent here, but the whole point of this is if the heart stops beating and someone loses consciousness, are they really truly dead if there's still 10 minutes worth of oxygen in the blood and as long as that blood is still moving, the person can be kept alive for a number of minutes more? That's the issue that I have with the argument right away. Life in that case is too loosely defined and does not include people who have a near-death experience. And if somebody is resuscitated from an unconscious state with a lack of a heartbeat, we don't say that they're living a different life. It's part of the story of their one life. Uh, somebody doesn't get two lives just because they are, quote, brought back from the dead. They're still living that exact same life. We don't look at it as a beginning of a new uh, living organism. And that's part of the inconsistency in my opinion, of saying that uh, somebody is dead when their heart stops beating. Their heart stops beating, which is a stop of a natural process. They probably stop breathing, which is the stop of a natural process. But enough of the cells are alive that they can be resuscitated if those uh, particular processes are restored. And so I brought that up, and they did what... A good individual who's questioning things will do. They didn't go to name-calling. They dealt with the arguments I presented. Very good. Much, much applause. Much applause. So the argument that they gave is that a person who's already alive, using kind of their ideas and their terminology, is different from a clump of cells. We can hear a, uh, a fetal heartbeat, but... It's not going to survive on its own. And it's a choice that you have to make since that person can't make a decision. First, that doesn't answer the question that I have. Somebody who's unconscious with a stopped heart doesn't have a choice in the matter either. Uh, you have to make that decision as well. But then, in that same comment, I found what the heart of the issue was. This individual opened up to me to talk about the issues within the foster care system and within the adoption system. And I realized something in that moment. Although we have the pro-choice advocates that, for as far as we can see from everything that they say, seem to be very anti-life and seem to be very aggressive and mean-spirited that's not the average person 
the average person, as I've had these conversations with people before, don't like to see suffering. And that's why, even though it doesn't help to define life, the arguments of the broken foster care and adoption system become relevant. People don't like suffering. People recognize that suffering is evil. And so therefore, when they see somebody suffering, it brings them a lot of pain. And I notice when people bring up the foster care system and uh, the difficulties with the adoption system and people being born into homes of people that don't want them and being born into abuse, I've started to shift my attitude on that. You know, I had in my mind for a while that uh, all pro-choice arguments were just selfish in nature because they're just looking out for the mother. But I've realized that that's not always the case. There are many instances, and many of the popular instances, where the arguments are very selfish in nature. They're focused on uh, a career instead of on preserving a life, or if you take the pro-choice argument, a possible life. Instead, what I've found is a lot of everyday people don't want to see children suffer. That's a good thing. Now, they're going about it in the wrong means. Uh, Ending a life before it has a choice of right or wrong uh, is not the answer to stopping suffering. But at least it's not an evil thought. And I think that should adjust the way that the church approaches this conversation. Now, for example, when I continued to have this conversation with this individual, they began to be accusatory in saying how pro-choicers or pro-choicers, pro-lifers don't care about the people already born, those in the foster care system, and uh, they're not open to adoption as much. And I got, a, I got a little bit more aggressive than I should have been. I piped in and I said, yeah, picked on the wrong person here. My wife and I are actually trying to get into the foster care system. And we are, we are hopeful that one day we will be able to adopt. They recognized their mistake pretty quickly. And they apologized and... Uh, corrected themselves in that moment. And as soon as that happened, as soon as they realized that I noticed the same issues that they did and that I was trying to be part of the solution, the tone changed instantly. All of a sudden, it went from these usual pro-choice arguments into a more heartfelt personal story. Uh, They started to talk about uh, people that they've known who've had miscarriages uh, because I I forgot to mention that was part of what was brought up. If we we define unborn life as uh, human life, then we have to rethink the way that we think about miscarriages. Well, most pro-choice people, pro-life people don't have that issue. 
because we see it as life and we grieve for it. This individual took that point and said, well, I know someone who has had a miscarriage as well, and we grieved with them as well because it was something that they hoped for. That helped to clear up a lot what was going on for me. Because on one end, they were grieving with someone who was mourning over the loss of something that they hoped for, a suffering, and so they mourned with that individual. And then on the other hand, they grieved the reality that a lot of children are born into households of people who don't want them or can't take care of them and so on and so forth. And the common factor is the suffering. This individual was able to notice there is suffering in this world and the suffering is evil. I think that's a point of encouragement. I was very encouraged from that conversation. And I think a lot of people in the church should be as well. People don't want to see children suffer. Even if they go about it the wrong way, at least their heart can be right in wanting children to have as good of a situation as possible for themselves. And perhaps that's the approach that we need to take from now on. Is we need to focus on having conversations in reducing suffering. And, as far as I know, it could be that most Christians may not be a part of the solution. It could be that most Christians who are pro-life uh, don't necessarily give two craps about the foster care system or adopting. I'm not sure. But I know that my wife and I do. I know that my parents do. I know that her parents do. I know that uh, close friends of ours who are foster parents care. And we're going to be part of the solution. And it's the people who are a part of the solution that are going to be the most effective. It's the people who are part of the solution that will be able to get down to the root of what the issue is and be able to address it the right way. So I encourage you today, take some time to find what the issue is. Take some time to learn how to be a part of the solution. And take some time to help reduce the suffering of people in this world. And in doing so, you will be a far more effective tool of God's kingdom. We'll be right back with a devotional in just a moment. I'm probably going to do a full episode of this later, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the resurrection in the Old Testament. I've heard the argument before that there is uh, no reference to an afterlife in the Old Testament, and therefore this somehow disputes all of Christianity altogether. 
But here's something I want you to think about. I want you, next time you hear somebody, uh, it could be a Jewish friend who uh, doesn't necessarily believe in the afterlife the same way that we do. Uh, it could be an atheist who doesn't believe in Christianity at all, but knows uh, some basic biblical knowledge. Next time someone comes to you and says that there is no mention of the afterlife in the Old Testament. Ask him about Genesis 25, verse 8. Now let me take you to that so that uh, you know what I'm talking about here. Genesis 25 is talking about the death of Abraham. And verse 7 says uh, that he lived 175 years. Then we get to verse 8. Pay close attention. Ready? Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age. An old man satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Ooh, what, is that, what does that last part mean? Gathered to his people. Well, it could be a few things. Uh, just based off of what we have in this verse, I, I mean, I guess it could be like a funeral procession of all of his family. I mean, we just went through uh, quite a few of his sons that he had uh, through Sarah, through Hagar, through... Uh, his other wives and concubines after Sarah passed away. I've heard it said that this could just mean that he was buried with his ancestors. Let's take a look at the next verse. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him. Ooh, 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 wait. Hold up there a second. That word right there, then, that's not exactly poetry. That's a narrative word. This is a narrative structure, a history, if you will. Now, here's what's really interesting, okay? Part of the... Uh, Part of the process of understanding a passage of scripture is understanding what type of literature it is. If it's a narrative structure, that means it's a history. It's not meant to be understood allegorically. It's meant to be understood historically. From the verb forms that are used in this passage, we can see that it's not used as poetry. It's used as narrative, as a story, as history. So when we read these verses, we need to understand that they're intended to be read chronologically. So let's look at it as a history. Verse 7, these are the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Verse 8, Abraham breathed his last and died, a ripe old man satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. Then, meaning after that, his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him. Okay, so if being gathered to his people means that he's buried with his ancestors, then how come this narrative is being repetitive. If you understand it as being buried with his ancestors, or just being buried with his people, 
then it would basically be saying this. And he was buried with his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him. Wait, so he's getting buried twice? Or is there something else going on? Ah, but that's just one verse. You could be understanding it the wrong way. Uh, what about... We go a little bit later. What if we go to Genesis chapter 49 and look in verse 33? This is the death of Jacob, or Israel. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. If he's being buried with his people, wait a second. At this point in the story, aren't they in Egypt? So how can he be buried with his people if they're not even with his people? Additionally, it's a narrative story again. And additionally, the first verse of chapter 50, right after this verse, then... Following that moment, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Wait, so was this after he was buried? Or is there something else going on here? Could it possibly be that being gathered to his people is talking about Abraham and Isaac's spirits? being gathered to his ancestors as God takes his life. That, to me, and as far as I'm concerned, literarily and historically, would be evidence of the afterlife in the Old Testament. What's so cool about that to me is not only is God consistent throughout all of Scripture, but Abraham was counted as righteous for his faith, and he's gathered to his people. God's plan of salvation goes even before the cross. We are saved through his blood. We are redeemed through his blood. But his redemption covers all of sin. Which is why he is able to forgive and to redeem those born before the cross. That is why his salvation is through faith. And that gives us hope. That gives us hope because God is consistent. And if he is consistent in his promises here, then we can trust he is consistent in his promises everywhere else. That's all I got for you today. Next week we are going to be in Romans chapter 9. It's a big week. It's going to be the last week before a three to four week break. I will let you guys know before we get back into the action. I might release some uh, extra little pieces of an episode here and there uh, and be ready because 
next week, I'm going to have a friend of mine, a pastor, join me on the podcast, and we are going to look at Romans chapter 9 together and compare some notes. So exciting things ahead. I love you guys. Thank you for tuning in, and I will see you next week.